Um, yes. So um, there's you know so much that can be said about the last two steps. Um, well, I think I'm going to go through them in a fairly conventional way. What what for me is fairly conventional since I've been sort of looking at these for a decade or so in this particular way. Um, which necessarily means that I'm just going to kind of touch on kind of points with it. Uh, and then I hope that there will be some time for you guys to point to the things that you would like to maybe go deeper into if there's one or two uh, of the elements of these steps that you'd like to talk a little bit further about tonight. So, uh, as I said, there's a lot in the last two steps. Step 11 says, We sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. So, uh, again, of course, this takes uh, some serious translation, uh, but I don't think it really requires... uh, tremendous contortions to turn this into something uh, useful and Buddhist. Uh, I, I, it was only really when I wrote my first book, One Breath at a Time, Buddhism, The Twelve Steps, see, available on Amazon, 12 minutes, um, that I really uh, clearly saw that and, and thought about the fact that the first word of this step, sought, was the past tense of the verb to seek. And it's what, I guess that's what you call an irregular verb in English. Uh, because if it weren't irregular, it would be seeked. Uh, but it's not. It's sought. So now, that in itself, I think, is, is meaningful for me that there's this uh, seeking that's going on here. We're, we're looking for something. We're look, We're to me, there, there's a sense of movement in that, not, not of permanence, but of, of an ongoing process. Um, and of course, prayer is mentioned here, so uh, that has to be discussed. Um, and, uh, you know, I take this on uh, in, uh, in all my books to some extent, so, but this... Um, uh, you know, a little sentence here. So without, without a God who's going to intervene in our lives, prayer takes on a different purpose and form. Prayer becomes about setting an intention, about inclining the heart and mind, and about stating our wishes to ourselves, of, so, which is really setting our intention, who we want to be. And... Um, so, in Buddhist terms, we could say that prayer uh, then is about cultivating certain qualities uh, and remembering. So, you know, when we say something like the serenity prayer, I think we're reminding ourselves of how we want to respond to and engage with the world. Oh, right. I need to accept things that I can't change, and I need to make an effort to to do the things that I that I really can do something positive about. Um, 
and I want serenity. You know what? Uh, so uh, I'm just reminding, reminded of what what's important. And when we get caught up in our um, stuff, our our reactivity, to have some words that we recognize as wisdom that can kind of pull us back when when you know just meditating alone or taking a breath alone isn't enough to kind of break through the density of the stuff that's going on for us to say something kind of ritualized it's clear that brings us back can be really valuable i think that's for me that's part of what prayer is but i would also say that what we call loving kindness meditation is actually prayer and um and it you know when you look at the christian mystics and the work that they did with prayer you see that they use prayer to cultivate many of the mind states that buddhists try to cultivate through what we call meditation so uh, because one of the essential aspects of meditation is concentration repeated prayer like repeating uh is it the Jesus prayer? Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, something like that, that certain Christian mystics just repeat over and over, or centering prayer. These things are have a, an effect of tremendously calming the heart and mind. And so, um, so at a certain point, these distinctions, uh, to some extent, dissolve. Uh, we, you know, the one of the uh, classic uh, phrases that I've, I've really only heard in AA is prayer is talking to God and meditation is listening to God. Uh, yeah, that's a cute one, you know. But of course, from uh, you know, you have to watch out for what you're listening to, because <laughs> sometimes other people intervene and tell you to invade Iraq. Uh, didn't didn't George W. say that you had God? God's guidance to you. I believe so. Bless his heart. The little painter. <laughs> she just wants to slap the guy. All right, I didn't say that. So, um, all right. See, I haven't gotten past the first two words, so, which is typical. But, um, so, improving our conscious contact with God. So let's... I, I think that if you, the, this phrase conscious contact to me is just a synonym for mindfulness. We're consciously contacting the present moment. That's what mindfulness is. It's a nice phrase, conscious contact. Um, and where would you find God if you were looking for it? Only likely that it would show up in the present moment. So that's here I am being mindful of what's going on, so it mu- this must be God that I'm encountering. You know, this somehow that's, oh, and I might not recognize it, but we can debate that later. I mean, I'm not trying to be glib, just, just to say that... that um, Being present, when we are fully present, there is a sense of connected connection, of completeness, of wholeness. And, and that, that to me is very much what we're talking about when we're talking about 
being in the presence of God or being feeling connected to God is, is just feeling connected. Uh, the word God to me is, in a way, is just sort of an extra word in that description of that experience. Praying for only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. You know, again, very tricky, uh, this idea of God's will. But I think what's important, what I think is actually the most important thing about this is what it's pointing away from. It's saying, praying only for, you know, to, to know what, the right thing to do is, and to have the capacity to do that, not praying for the stuff that we want. That's what it's. That's what's kind of. I think that's what they're really trying to say in that statement. Praying only for knowledge. If it's not praying for my new car, my new job, or my relationship, or you know, to get the stuff that I want. Not selfish prayers. Not praying for, you know, so and so to be you know, to recover from their, you know, cancer. It's like, no, this is like, really, that's not our job, you know, to try to control the world. And that's, and, and it's really, it's pointing to the fact that that kind of prayer is a kind of grasping. It's a kind of, you know, clinging. And it's, that's not, that's going to cause suffering ultimately. Even if you get what you want, well, then you're really in trouble because then you think it works. And so you then you're going to keep praying for that. And then when it doesn't work, then you're going to feel bereft because God now doesn't love you anymore. And you've been abandoned by God, you know, after he liked you so much before, what did you do wrong? You know, and then you fall from grace and, you know, it's just a headache. Don't bother. But what, you know, what I think our practice is meant to do is, part of what it's meant to do is, uh, you know, develop our intuition, our, that capacity to, to, to know what the next right thing to do is. That's not so much about our own wanting, but it's like, oh, you know, I really need to do this. And it's that quiet, you know, listening to that still quiet voice. Um, I have one friend, Tom Catton. Uh, I might have mentioned him, but he he's in Hawaii, and uh, he's kind of the original hippie in a beautiful way. Um, and Tom, uh, he has a book called The Mindful Addict, uh, uh, and uh, it tells his story of recovery. The good thing about it. One of the good things about it is that it's mostly about recovery, not mostly about his disease, you know, because addiction uh, memoirs tend to like to focus on the drama and all the, you know, the cocaine on the, in the carpet and all that. And, and Tom's book is much more about his kind of amazing life after recovery, which he got clean back in, I think, 71 or something like that. And he had a, he, his first sponsor was this woman, Name, who was called Flowbird, and Flowbird, like, was kind of a psychic or something, and and she was clean. She she'd been an addict, and she taught him to meditate every morning and listen for God's will, and then do that. So he takes this very literally. Like, fortunately, he doesn't invade Iraq. He doesn't have 
armies at his command, and he doesn't incline towards those things. But uh, but he very much uh, believes in the idea of of getting re- actual kind of divine guidance, and uh, we don't talk much about that at Spirit Rock. <laughs> um, and it's not something I I sense, but there are people who really do have those those feelings of connection and he, and it's important to him I, I think he's I think he has a point that in a way we don't un- cultivate enough of that kind of intuitive part of us to really trust that we're getting um, guidance that there is that there is spiritual guidance for us I don't know but I I bring it up just because it's here it is in the step Um, you know, I, in my little assignment thing, I have this piece about clear comprehension, and I go f- much further into that in one breath at a time in step 11. So if you're interested in that, it's sort of my attempt to like create a, a, a or make, draw a, a parallel with, um, with Buddhist teaching in terms of getting guidance and sort of methodical, but I'm, I'm not going to go into that right now because I want to... Well, I'm, I'm gonna, let me go through step 12, and then if anybody wants to back up and talk some about step 11, we can do that. But uh, I'm trying to uh, do what was brought up a couple weeks ago and just kind of give the, the basics of this, these connections. And, and just to say that for, I think for a lot of Buddhist practitioners, definitely for me, when I came to the 12 steps, because I had a background in meditation and Buddhism, when I saw step 11, that was one of the main things that made me feel like, okay, maybe I can do this program because so much of it seemed alien to me. But then I saw, well, meditation, okay, they have some kind of a clue. So, Although nobody was meditating that I met, you know, I mean, anyway. So step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics, addicts, whatever, and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So there are three parts to this step, uh, three very important parts, the spiritual awakening, carrying the message, and the practicing the principles. So the idea of a spiritual awakening uh, is a a complicated one, uh, which uh, most different, I think probably every different religious tradition has its own version of what this means, enlightenment in Buddhism. Um, and in fact, Jack Cornfield has a wonderful essay called Enlightenments, with an S, uh, in his uh, book, uh, I think it's called Bringing Home the Dharma, something like that. It's got a little front door of a house on the cover. I'm sure they have it in there. And that essay talks about all the different Buddhist versions of enlightenment. And his main point being, you can't really define enlightenment. And it's kind of not, people take different stances. In, you know, in Japan, they'll say it's one thing. In Burma, they'll say it's another thing. In Tibet, they'll say it's something else. And so it's just sort of not that useful a term in a certain way. Although, it, what, it, I guess his further point, and, uh, you know, that's kind of my interpretation of what he's saying, because he's also saying, I, I guess a better description of what he's saying is that there are many different 
manifestations of enlightenment. And he kind of names them. He gives them different names, like the, and the emptiness form of enlightenment that you might see in Zen and what he calls, what's he call, um, the Dalai Lama, compassionate blessings. Um, and then there's the enlightenment that comes through the Burmese concentration practices. And then if you go to Thailand, it's much more about moment to moment uh, enlightenment, sort of little nirvanas, as Buddha Dasa says. So I think that, that if you're interested in that, I, I, I think it's a really good essay to read if you get the chance. For me, when I first, again, when I first saw these steps and having been immersed in this idea that there was some kind of special thing that I was meditating to get called enlightenment, I kind of looked at the steps and said, you know, these people are crazy or they don't know what they're, they don't know what they're talking about if they think that they're going to get enlightened by doing these 12 steps. I mean, this is like, you know, I thought it was just like kindergarten spirituality, the 12 steps. I, I wasn't at all arrogant or... <laughs> at all at the time. Um, and now I've, that whole idea, I've actually flipped that on its head, which is that I actually feel now that every one of the steps embodies a certain kind of spiritual awakening. Um, and I think I go through that, and I might go through that in here. Um, that's step 11. Uh, yes, so I have this little piece in the, in the workbook. Uh, what, what did I just say? Okay. okay, there it is, under spiritual awakening. Uh, well, it starts on page 227, but I, I list the, the 12 awakenings starting at the bottom of 229. So I say, or, or, yeah, so actually I go start about step one over on 228. Step one, today I see step one as one of the most trans powerful transformative experiences of my life, as the most powerful transformative experience. So that that was a, step one was a spiritual awakening to me, right? I mean, I didn't, uh, at the time I didn't think of it as a spiritual awakening, but it was. It was a waking up to my condition, waking up to suffering and the cause of suffering and how to end suffering. You know, it was waking up to the truth of the Four Noble Truths. And because I not, didn't just have that insight, but I acted on it, that makes it transformative because it changed the way I am. It changed who I am to a great extent and certainly changed the whole direction of my life. So, step two awakens us to the possibility of change. Step three awakens us to commitment and acceptance. Step four awakens us to our own failings, and so on. You know that the steps are are all awakenings. So I thought, oh, you had to get to step twelve before you had your spiritual awakening, but uh, now I see them as 
all of them as being little enlightenments in themselves. Um, You know, one of the one of the things I've experienced through my meditation practice is, you know, I, my early retreats, I would go and I would sit, and I, you know, I'd, it was really interesting and rich, but I kept waiting for like the insight sign to start flashing somewhere that I would know that I had gotten the insight that the teachers were talking about, and. Then, later on, like after a retreat, I'd be reading something of Jack's or Joseph Goldstein's or something, and kind of go, oh, right, I had that experience. And gradually, I started to realize that, the ins- that I'd had the insights, in th- that I'd had the experiences, but that I hadn't sort of understood them. Uh, I hadn't understood what I'd experienced. So there are these two different components to, to insight. There's the experience itself, and then there's the knowing of the meaning of the experience. And a lot of times for me, it's the teachers just point out to me the meaning of the experience I've had. Um, so I'm not sure where I was going or starting or anything about that. Yeah. I guess um, understanding. I mean, there is there is the again from the mind to the heart. You know, the seeing and and um, recognizing and and. Uh, but I think that shift changes. You know, when it gets to your when it gets to your heart, when you yeah. can really again feel. Um, I also wanted to bring up too. Um, you know, for me, for a long time, it was. Uh, was about hope and fear, and uh, one thing that the steps, you know, and I had a lot of sobriety, but I never really did the steps. And um, one thing I'm finding is, you know, by putting the rubber to the road, I'm actually, um, you know, you, I can change. Whereas before, this sort of hope and fear, and I'm sure the drug or something else would get me out of it. That you know, bad feeling or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was this sort of constant, you know, circle of mm-hmm. going back to, well, I'm not feeling good. I don't want to do it. Okay, I'm back into it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, and like the Eightfold Path, even the Ten Commandments, there's sort of here's a map as mm-hmm. to start um, changing or, or, yeah. So it's been. Yeah, but break, breaking the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. To interrupt, interrupt the, cycle. the cycle. Yeah, and that it is a cycle, and you just—it really hasn't been a very skillful or, you know, way of, of uh, breaking it. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, the right. I mean, if it's a cycle of hope, fear, then back to addiction, then that's. Right. Uh, but, uh, but it's funny how your mind can sort of think. I that, and I guess that's sort of like your the reason I brought it up is that same feeling of. Waiting to see the sign, or yeah. you know, came to my first Jack Cornfield class. I didn't get enlightenment stuff, mm-hmm. and um, and that's that's the sort of same you know as going to heaven. If I do these things, then I'm in. 
Yeah. Instead of really just, so it doesn't really offer, you know, then you sort of sit and God, I go, you know, I'm a good person, change it. Yeah. Instead of doing the work. Right. And then when you do, it's like, I can change. And I yeah. guess that's the hopeful part of it, but you have to. Right. And so uh, what I'm kind of hearing underneath this somewhat, at least what comes up for me is that both, both Buddhism and the Twelve Steps are, have a big behavioral aspect to them where we have to, we have to take certain actions. And, you know, in the Twelve Step world, we say you can't think your way into right action. You have to act your way into right thinking. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression. But it's, this is part of what we're pointing at. It's like you, you don't feel like it, but you keep showing up. And you keep, because, and, and eventually, some inner change does happen through the action, through the behavior. Meditation, in, uh, in a, I think, uh, seems at least to work in the opposite way, which is that we meditate and try to transform ourselves so that our outward behavior will start to change, or our experience of things will start to change. But if you go back and you look at the way the Buddha taught lay people, because the, the monks were already kind of advanced in terms of their behavior. With the lay people, he started with behavior. He started by teaching generosity, the five precepts, and then about the five hindrances. And you'll see many suttas that are for lay people go through this. And, this, and so the Eightfold Path, which contains both behavioral, you know, all, all, not just both, it contains behavioral aspects in the right action, right um, livelihood, right speech. It, it contains meditative aspects, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And it contains... They're called wisdom aspects, right view and right intention. So the traditional way of understanding these three different sections is that it starts with the behavioral. We call it sila, or for morality is the translation of that. But it's really how we... So the sila, then when we have that foundation, then we start to practice meditation. And with meditation the wisdom develops. In the West, we flip that on our head, on its head. We go, we want to learn about wisdom, and then we go, oh, wow, this, this stuff is really great. It really interests me. I'm intellectually engaged. I think I'll try the meditation. And after we meditate for a while, we realize, you know, maybe I ought to sort of start to clean up my life because I'm not really, uh, you know, I'm supposedly I believe in all this stuff, but I'm not really... So we kind of do it backwards. But, you know, the fact is you do it in whatever way you can do it. Because we could also say that right view, even though that's supposed to be part of the wisdom that develops, is also where we start and right intention. So it's, it's not really that, 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 you know, laid out in that way. But clearly there's this interaction, is what I'm getting at, between behavioral and internal cultivation, you know. Right. And then being able to step off of that, right. which is sort of 
Yeah. And, and the thing is, if, if we are addicted to something, it's very difficult to get started with any kind of authentic process of spiritual growth. And so that's why, you know, you know, bringing in the 12 steps can be useful because, you know, it, it lets us like deal with that blockage. You know, I mean, I meditated for seven years before I got sober and, you know, it was useful, but it just didn't really like develop, you know, and, and, uh, so that without that fundamental sila, it's very hard to to go deep, and it's and it's just not very meaningful because ultimately it winds up being sort of narcissistic, and we're meditating sort of to have experiences or because we want to like you know wow like I took acid and and you know I want to I, I want to see if I can do that naturally you know those kind of ideas that are just. Uh, you know, thrill-seeking in a way. Okay, let me move on to the second part of step 12, which says, having had a spiritual awakening, we decided that we should retire from all this stuff, take it easy, indulge ourselves, enjoy ourselves, just bliss out, and... Oh, no, wait, I'm sorry. No, it says... We tried to carry this message to other. Oh, wait, wait. Oh, wait. I remember now. So, what the steps are saying is that we're not actually doing this for ourselves. And we discovered that the Buddha had this exact experience. I don't know if you've ever heard the tale of his enlightenment. Uh, it's quite an interesting story, a lengthy one, so I'll tell you the just a snippet of it. It is said that after he became enlightened under the Bodhi tree, he sat there for a time uh, in a rather blissed out state, kind of very, just, he'd let it all go. And it occurred to him that if he tried to go out and teach people, it would just be sort of annoying because they wouldn't get it. And he would just get frustrated with them. And he just thought it was kind of pointless. Like, why should... Uh, this is too... Basically, he felt like what he had realized was too subtle and sort of advanced for anybody to get. And so, uh, in the text, it says that a one of the Brahma gods came and whispered in his ear... <laughs> And people say there's no God in Buddhism. It's true. There's no God. There's gods. There's tons of them. But this Brahma God came and said, no, there are some with just a little dust in their eyes. So he realizes that, wait, you know, am I just, I can sit here and just meditate for the rest of my life in absolute, in nirvana, you know, but what's the point? I mean, that's what I think is going on. He realizes you know, I have a job to do now. <laughs> this is, because once you let go of the idea that what my life is about is about satisfying my personal goals and desires, 
if, if you see that that's just a dead end, and in the Buddhist terms, in Buddhist terms, if you see that this thing that you're trying to satisfy doesn't really exist, then you're really wasting your time. <laughs> you know, you sp uh, there's nothing really to satisfy. You know, it's just, again, a cycle, right? You're just trapped in another cycle, which is fundamentally, you know, addiction to a self, to an, a sense of a self, and satisfying this sort of illusory thing and trying to hold it together. So having this breakthrough, the Buddha kind of realized the only really worthwhile thing to do is go out and teach. So that's what he does for the rest of his life. Every day he just gets up in the morning and you know, goes for his alms round, gets some food. And then whoever is around who's ready to hear his teachings, he teaches for 45 years. Yeah. Um, and so I, I love that idea because it really so much, uh, again, is so in accord with the 12 steps which say, you know, uh, that our, the self, our self-centeredness was our problem, right? Well, if, self, if you're centered around a self that doesn't exist, that's really a problem. But the, that this whole, uh, this isn't really ha where happiness comes from. And happiness comes from service. And some kind of, uh, of uh, giving something of value to the world. Um, so the last part of the step then says we, to practice these principles in all our affairs. So having had a spiritual awakening, we tried to carry the message and to practice the principles in all our affairs. And I, I think of this last phrase as being the one that closes all the loopholes. You know, in case you thought there was some situation where it was okay to you know, cut corners, it's like, no, this is about your life. This isn't about going to a meeting or just about drinking and using uh, or, or looking good. Uh, you know, it's not about coming to Spirit Rock and meditating and then going on going to church on Sunday and then you're okay with God. It's like, no, this is about your life. This is about every moment, which is, of course, just a, you know, if God is everywhere and God knows everything, then it's a good idea to practice these principles in all your affairs. If karma is everywhere and knows everything, then it's going to, whatever you do is going to have some impact. Um, and it, you know, it, it really... Um, To me, that's one of the things I think that really drew me to Buddhism was that, you know, I'd been practicing a form of meditation that, where the way I understood the teachings, and of course, uh, again, I've been known to be deluded, but the, how I understood it was you just do this meditation twice a day and then some kind of transformation will just happen. And when I started to read about Buddhism, it was like, about being mindful all the time. And it was about, you know, this eightfold path that applied to everything in my life. You know, it included livelihood and speech. It included morality and sexuality and, you know, uh, you know being honest. And, and it included, obviously, meditation and, and how I view the world, right view, and my intentions. It just included everything. And that felt like, oh, this is really going to 
be something I can use because it's, it's not some magical thing that you just say these magic words and you, you change or, you, or you, you, know, you, you believe something and then God takes care of you. This is about really practical. It applies to all of my life. And so that idea of practicing these principles in all our affairs really fits so well with, that, with those principles of Buddhism as I understand them and as the Eightfold Path seems to suggest. So, I've used up all the official time, um, but I am happy to answer one or two more questions if you have them before we go. Now, all the answers are in my books anyway, so you have no worries. But a couple things I'll just say. Um, first of all, um, as you know, I have a class every month here, so I'm going to be here a week from tomorrow. Uh, it's the second Friday of April, and here the second Friday of every month. Um, but I also teach retreats, and um, the two retreats that I have scheduled on the West Coast for this year, one is in October, uh, and that's one that I organized more or less uh, goes from a Wednesday night or one, you know, Wednesday afternoon Wednesday night to a Sunday noon and it's uh, largely silent we do we, we have sessions of kind of interaction but there's also a lot of silent meditation so it's really an opportunity if you're interested in exploring a retreat it's an opportunity to come on retreat without being fully silent and being in an environment and, and the the theme is the same thing as this, Buddhism and the Twelve Steps, and so we explore those topics together. And it, that's at Vajrapani Institute, which is a Tibetan center down in uh, Boulder Creek in the up above Santa Cruz, beautiful place back in the Redwoods. So if you're interested in doing a retreat, that's really the place I would uh, invite you to come. I'm also going to be at Esalen in December, so if you just want to sit in the hot tubs and get massages and do some of this work. That's also pleasant. Much more expensive, I believe. But uh, um, I'm also, I usually teach one or two day longs here each year. Uh, I don't have anything scheduled right now, but it, it'll, they will show up at some point. And I'm also going to probably teach something at San Francisco Insight. Uh, I'm not sure when, but I've been talking to Eugene, actually about that. Uh, he's invited me to, to do something, asked me what I want to do, and I, I think a day long, I'm going to start with a day long and maybe we'll develop a class in San Francisco as well. Uh, so if you're interested, you know, I always keep my schedule on my website, kevingriffin.net. I also usually send out one or at the most two emails a month if you want to sign up for my mailing list, which is on my website. And I actually have two there's two signups. There's one that's just for Bay Area, so that, that way I don't send out things that are just around the Bay Area to, to the whole mailing list. So if you if you want to sign up uh, for that, just go on. It's on the front page of my website. Um, Say the website once again. KevinGriffin.net. Yeah. I mean, if you Google me, it's me and the lead guitar player for Better Than Ezra, and we <laughs> com compete for that top spot. And, you know. <laughs> Um, but uh, 
Yeah, it's it's easy to find that. And and I you know, I used to come and have a sheet for people to sign their email address and then I wouldn't be able to read their email address or it'd be sitting there and I'd be like, Oh, I have to type that into my computer, I don't want to bother. So now I take the lazy way. Opt in. If you like. Um, what else was I gonna say? Um, I don't know. I think that's I think that's it. Um, this is uh something we've been doing here for over a decade every year so thank you for coming and doing this with me and at least one person has done it with me before and and I don't know if it's different every year or not I it's sort of the same but different um my third one really it's different okay yeah. and you know we can be sure that each of us is different each year, so our minds, we hear different things, we're, we're, and certainly my emphasis changes as time goes on and different things come up for me, so uh, it's fun to do. So I, I really hope that, um, you know, one of my biggest goals in teaching and offering these teachings is to inspire people to go deeper with their Buddhist practice, and that that means, I, to some extent, I just see myself as a gateway into the practice, uh, not as... I mean, it's great. It's wonderful when people like to keep sitting with me, and I, and I love having friends and familiar faces around. Uh, but I'm also really pleased when I hear people saying, oh, well, I signed up for the retreat with you know, so-and-so, and I'm going to go for a month, I'm going to go for a week. Or, um, that's that's when I feel like I've done really done my job, um, and someday I may teach some of those longer retreats myself. Um, but uh, right now, this is seems to be my work. So, as a self-employed Dharma teacher, I just do what they tell me to do, what, what I'm invited to do, and uh, so so let's just close. Having had a spiritual awakening, we tried to carry this message. And I don't think we have to even try to carry a message, a message of love and compassion, a message of wisdom. A message of recovery, of letting go. That when we live this way, the message is carried. When we engage and sincerely in our practice and our program, We transform ourselves, and as we transform ourselves, the world around us is transformed. May our work together over these weeks 
be of benefit to those who suffer from addiction. May it be of benefit to those we love, our friends and intimates in our lives. May it help to heal the world and its wounds. May we bring wisdom and compassion to all our actions. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be happy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.